Canadian Family Health Counseling provides education and counseling services across Canada and beyond. Our holistic approach, called Neural Network Therapy, uses practical tools to boost mood, reduce anxiety, manage anger, break unwanted habits, and develop strong, healthy relationships. Sit back and relax while clinical director and founder Kim Sargent shares her insights and expertise on why emotional health matters. Hello and welcome back to Emotional Health Matters. My name is Kim Sargent and I'm the clinical director of Canadian Family Health Counseling. And I'm just sitting down at this podcast after a time away from it. So I think I'm going to stop saying that at the beginning of every podcast. Um, I'm living right now at a really beautiful island on Stony Lake and um, none of my recording equipment is there. So when I come into town, and have something to say it's got to align just right rather than me just having something rolling around in my head and sitting down to this microphone any old time I like. So I'm going to talk really briefly about death and I know that that's a really uncomfortable subject for most of us. I don't I really think we don't do a great job of death in Canada anyway. I mean I, I realize that I can't speak for every country. Um, I certainly think that there are many cultures that do a really beautiful job of death, but I don't think that for the most part, um, Canadians are among, among those that seem to really do, I think, what needs to happen with it, which is uh, talk about it a lot and, and enough, at least, to be able to make this something um, that doesn't feel quite so scary. So a couple of weeks ago, I had the very rare opportunity, which sounds, I guess, cheap in a way, but really it it was truly an opportunity um, to be at someone's bedside as they were passing. And I had gone to support my friend whose, whose husband was dying of Alzheimer's, early Alzheimer's, at 67. And when I went, I intended to go in and spend a bit of time there to be able to support her and bring her the things she might need. She had chosen to go through this palliative care process at home. Um, for lots of reasons, COVID being one of them. She'd also hired a private nurse and things the last minute had not worked out. So she was in a bit of a situation. And I don't tend to ask myself the question about whether or not I'm capable of things. I sort of show up and then I figure out whether or not I can do them. And that was the case here. I just knew I needed to get to her and she was allowing me to come, which was really a great thing. Um, And his daughter was there playing guitar and singing beautiful songs and and they were both, of course, in this, you know, completely grief-stricken and, and fighting to let go of this beautiful, beautiful man, but also hanging on, of course, to the, the love that they had for him. And when I got there, I had this very, you know, I'm driving and I'm very conscious of the fact that, okay, I need to make sure I stay in a, you know, a state of clarity uh, where I can really appreciate what's going on and be a proper support and not kind of get down into this very, you know, very, very private world that they're in, this very... Um, you know, sacred space, I, I wanted to maintain this distance so that I could really be of some support and, and, and make sure I could maintain that. Fast forward 24 hours later, I had no idea what time of day it was. We were, we were up around the clock and I was just a part of what was going on there. Her sister flew in um, and that something happened when the four of us got together and it was really uh, something I'm just never going to forget. And it's something we bonded in, in a really deep way. But I think I've asked permission to talk about this because I really feel we need to talk about this. And I don't mean me and this experience, although there's something to be said about 
processing things in that way. Um, and the four of us will always have this very powerful connection. But I mean, just talking about death, just putting that out there and having this conversation. And, and of course, we're all going to experience this at some point of our lives. You know, obviously, we're all, all of our lives will come to an end. That's, that's going to happen. That's a for sure. Um, and I just don't know how we get better at it. So I'm, I'm just going to put my hat in the ring, I guess, and say what I need to say about it. And that's that um, I'd like us to do better. So my friend decided that this, this at-home palliative care process during COVID times, as, you know, in particular, was going to be the way that she could best grieve. And right now, the community that she lives in actually happens to be able to provide some support to that effect. So they send in a nurse for about 15 minutes in a day. They kind of check on things, change over, uh, you know, pain pumps and different anxiety medications and whatever else might need to happen. And they kind of inform you a little step along the way. And there's a whole lot that's missed in that. But they are doing something, and that was that was a great thing. Um, and and they're talking to you about about what's happening um, a little at a time. The body goes through a lot of stages of of letting go. And and one thing I, in particular with this with this very beautiful man was that he helped his family prepare to let go. And that was something that I watched happen from the time I arrived until the time he did let go. Um, and I know that nurses have talked about this a lot. Uh, oddly enough, you know, people will stay by somebody's bedside for you know day after day after day, and finally they leave for three seconds to go to the washroom or something, and the person slips away. And that's one choice. And I think in this case, what I saw that seemed true, at least for me, was that this man was very, uh, you know, his, his his wife and his daughter were on either side of his bed, and, and in this really beautiful space, you know, saying all of the most loving and, and beautiful things they could to be able to be there for him and to give him permission to go and to tell them, you know, tell them how much they would, they would look after one another. And this was a really, really, you know, this is a, this is a guy who, who needed to make sure that everybody was okay. He was also actually somebody who was the last one to go to bed after a good party. So he'd be up until the wee hours of the morning. And I think that he decided to do the same thing on his very last minutes. He was not going to leave the party uh, until he was good and ready to go. But something that I think happened that was spiritual in that room, that was really, you know, kind of unexplainable in its way, was that um, at the beginning of the week when I arrived, I could see these two people who were grieving, very generously trying and trying to be where they needed to be to be able to to let him transition, to, to let go of what was happening and to be to be there for him in that way. And while I know that they were saying all the right words, their hearts were just breaking, and it was heartbreaking. And he was still here. So each time they would come to him with all of these things, you could see him sort of rally around again, and all of a sudden he'd pull back up and, and say, no, no, okay, I'm staying, I'm staying, I'm staying. And as the week went on, I think what happened is that they both prepared, and he prepared them to be able to say, no, really, I gotta go. <laughs> and as that happened, one of the most, you know, incredible things happened. They were both in the room. But they were both very much in a place of being ready for this to happen. So while it was painful and there were there were lots of confusing feelings that came up and, and it was just a you know, exactly what it should be, this gut-wrenching moment of, okay, that's my last breath and and this is it. I think what happened was was one of the most incredible things I've ever witnessed in my life, which was that, you know, there was this peacefulness to it. And it made me think about 
how important that would be for each of us to have that. And does it need to be this other thing? I mean, there's some part of me that, you know, I don't, of course, none of us know what's really going on here. But I do think that, you know, I look at my life in terms of resistance. I've learned a lot about that. I know that when I'm resisting anything, it's more painful. Uh, No differently than, you know, children can kind of, you know, you watch a child bounce off of something like a rock and they just kind of fold and tuck and roll and bounce back up again. And as we get older, we have more and more resistance and things are more painful, I think, as it is, you know, what we know that they're more painful as a result. Women birthing, um, we know if we can get, you know, who's going through that transition into this really relaxed state through hypnotherapy or through whatever other, you know, means to be able to calm the nervous system and really bring things down, that that labor is going to go quicker. She's going to have less pain. She's going to have less complications. And speaking of that, oddly enough, there was this really incredible moment in time when I realized this is just the same. So this person had been in the room when I'd given birth to, to my daughter and, and my friend that is now at her husband's deathbed. And there was something really, really familiar about this experience of all being together in this room and waiting for this thing to happen. And it occurred to me that the beginning of life and the end of life have an, an awful lot in common. Um, I knew of an end-of-life doula. I wasn't, um, one of my staff actually, one of my students in my emotional health practitioner program is, you know, has that certification. And I haven't spoken to her about it at length, but uh, I certainly had a a deep respect for palliative care nurses and for end-of-life doulas and for any of those very special people that know exactly how and what to do as people are going through this together. So while there's not much that I can offer, except that, you know, wow, and that's not (laughs) really much to say um i really want to i really want to put it out there that i think it would be helpful for each of us to get better at this conversation i know that um because my dad died very suddenly at 42 it was a heart attack and he was gone that was that i was 19 at the time i didn't really know a lot about what his wishes were and i had to learn about that in a in a will and i've since decided myself to have conversations with my children about the things that i want how I want them, you know, to go and and just taking all of that pressure, I think, in its way away from them so that they don't have to wonder or make decisions that can be big decisions. They just know. And I think that's important. I think it's important we do that. And I think it's important we talk about death. And I think it's important we show up for those people that are going through that thing because we have a tendency to turn, avert our eyes or to not have those conversations. I know that when I was going through a very deep grieving process of losing my dad, I would be afraid to bring up the grief I was experiencing because I knew I was making other people uncomfortable. And that didn't seem right. (laughs) And and yet I needed desperately to have some support around me in those times. And it didn't need to be educated support. It could have just been just talking about those things. So bring it up. I mean, you've probably heard before that the person that you're talking (laughs) to has not forgotten that they've lost somebody. I think that's an important thing to say. I also think that if we can work towards this grieving process being a process, but understanding that as we as we do let let ourselves go deeply, deeply into this process, and we have some exercises of the practice that we use called the shrine, where we kind of erect, you know, this this space to be able to more consciously grieve. And that, I don't know that the shrine itself even matters. It's really about saying, I'm grieving right now. I mean, we used to take to our beds. We used to to wear black. We used to announce that we were going through this. 
that at least had some grit. There was something going on there um, that said, I'm not going to just three days later jump back into my life and pretend everything is okay. I'm going to go through this in a process. Um, but because we don't do those things anymore and because people are choosing different ways to be able to manage this process and can, um, the more opportunities we have to, to be near or with or around anyone experiencing these things, the better. And I think we, we need to reach out to one another and maybe even just ask the question, you know, um, what is it I can do to be human? Uh, how can we talk about this or when can we talk about it that would be part of your process so that I can be of support? Those questions are okay. You don't have to know what to say. I realize that we all fumble with the, Sorry for your loss. Um, but that's sufficient. It really is. You don't have to come up with something brilliant. Uh, you just have to reach out to one another. Um, and lastly, on the death note and talking about transition, one of the things I spoke to these people about weeks ago was the idea that when we go into grief, of course, we tumble down into this state of despair and we feel very much disconnected from everyone and everything around us. And that's that's just to be expected. That's what pain does. And while this was a very beautiful and peaceful transition, there's still a trauma to it. He was here and he was not here. He was taken away. Um, and now life goes on without him. And so what I think our best work is, is to do whatever it takes to be able to release that resistance with the idea that when we return to a state of appreciation, and I don't mean this happy, happy, joy, joy, clapping kind, um, the giddy kind, that's wonderful, that's a great state of appreciation. I mean the kind where you can really actually, you just can see yourself in perspective. You can appreciate where you are in relation to other people, and that's a much more accessible space than most of us you know, realize. I think that's when we connect most with the people that we've lost. This very thin veil, whatever it might be between our world and theirs, is as thin as it can be in that state of appreciation. Down in despair, it's kind of like, you know, it's big, thick walls that have, have sort of blocked us in. And, and that part of that's for protection. Some of it's just shutting out that light to say, I don't, I don't want to feel happy and shiny. Everything is quite terrible in my world right now, so I'm going to stay there. And I think we should. I don't, I don't think it's there's a problem. I think that's just part of that process. And then we bounce around in guilt a little and we think about the different things. We all know the stages of grief that we go through. There's anger, there's bargaining, there's acceptance, and then and we don't always do them in order. We go from one to another and then back again. But when we think about the idea of being in a state of appreciation, that is when we feel as connected as we possibly can to those living and dead, those that have come before us, those that will come after us. I, I think there's this really almost un almost exquisite sense of connection. And that's exactly where we want to be in order to be able to connect people that we've lost. So with that, uh, I'll leave this podcast and I'll be back to you soon. If you like what you've heard on today's podcast and want to learn more about our counseling and education services, or to get involved with our Grow Happy Gardens Health and Happiness Worldwide Tour, visit our website at canadianfamilyhealth.ca because health and happiness begin with you.